Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have my friend Matt Kahn back again. He is a top-selling author of Whatever Arises, Love That, and Everything is Here to Help You. And today we're going to be talking about his latest and new book. I think it's just coming out, The Universe Always Has a Plan. And Matt is a spiritual teacher and highly attuned empathic healer who's become a YouTube sensation with his healing and often humorous videos. His more than 15 million YouTube channel viewers are finding the support they seek to feel more loved, awakened, and open to the greatest possibilities in life through that invitation. Matt, welcome back to Conversations. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's been a few years. So uh, you have a new book. The universe always has a plan, 10 golden rules of letting go. And I want to get into the 10 rules a little bit, but for those of people who don't know you, talk about kind of your evolution as a spiritual teacher. So I began my spiritual career really learning about life and energy and and connection as a kid, like a lot of us do. And when we don't realize that we're exploring something deeper, we're just kind of questioning. And when I was a kid, one of my biggest confusions was that I could feel the emotions of other people's uh, feelings in my bodies. And I would interpret that the feelings from them that I would feel were, were their opinion of me. So as an empath or as someone who can feel the emotions of others, I would constantly think that, I'd have to cheer up others in order to be accepted by them. And I didn't realize until much later in life that it wasn't their negative opinion of me. It was the discord they were experiencing with their family, with the world, with their perception. And so I lived a life as a child, like many of us do, in a state what I call vibrational codependency, uh, where I, I would constantly confuse other people's experiences uh, for their perceptions of me. And this led to many spiritual experiences throughout my life uh, in, in which I went through a very interesting series of activations. And the series of activations I went through was not just to become a healer, but then I went through the awakening process because as I was told by the universe, there are awakened beings that are not healers and there are healers that are not, not awakened. And I was given an opportunity to merge these two worlds together to utilize my healing abilities with people at my events and through the energy encoded in the words of my book, such as this new one, to the healing that I offer is to not only help us heal and clear our hearts and to open up our energy fields and to resolve our past, but to actually use healing as a modality to help people through the various stages of awakened consciousness. And so that's part of the unique gift that I offer is being able to help people heal and awaken and integrate these two realities as a fully embodied living presence. That's such a common thing that I'm, I think more and more people 
who are recognizing their empathic uh, connection mm. have a lot of trouble separating yeah. my stuff from your stuff to the cultural field of stuff. Um, how does that, relating to your new book, I'm looking for which rule uh, in your 10 rules would, would talk to that part of being able to, um, uh, and it's kind of a, it's like separating and connecting at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's a funny challenge. What, uh, where does that fit in your new book? <laughs> well, I think it'd probably be golden rule number one. Golden rule number one says you've done nothing wrong. So right. no matter what happens, you've done nothing wrong. And in the book, I unpack it and synthesize it in such a way where it gives a very compelling case for you've done nothing wrong and all the ways in which the ego will misperceive that and how to glean the most amount of wisdom for that. But the reason why that golden rule is so important to what we're talking about as empaths is because, for example, when I would be around my, my friends, I would feel the discord they had with one or two of their parents. And then I would interpret that as this is their limiting experience about me. So the feeling in my body is other people's experiences. The conclusion I made about it, that made it about me, was my experience. So if we have golden rule number one, we have the ability to say, I feel discord in my body. Perhaps I could say to someone, hey, I'm feeling sadness or anger. Does that match how you're feeling in some part of your life? Mm -hmm. So learning how to ask people about their experiences instead of just using it as ammunition against ourselves. And so when I started out the, gold, you know, the 10 golden rules with you've done nothing wrong, I really wanted to channel from the universe 10 definitive rules that no matter what your experience is, no matter how often you get triggered, no matter how deep dark night of the soul tends to be, you have 10 rules and ways of anchoring yourself into a very clear experience without harming yourself, mistreating yourself, or blaming yourself, or interpreting something as if you've done something to someone else, when in fact what we're doing is taking the feelings other people are having and we're turning into something limiting that matches the way we've been trained or conditioned to mm. view ourselves. Beautiful. Yeah. So we mostly carry so much guilt and shame and regret. Yeah. How can we actually use that for our awakening? So you've done nothing wrong, and you, but you still have those mm -hmm. inner critic and all those things coming up, but that's an access to a much greater awareness. Yes. How do we use, use this to expand the awareness? Well, if we think of the word use, use infers that the experiences we have are, a, and I mean this in a positive way, by the way, use infers a tool. Mm -hmm. Like when we think, how do I use this? Most people who will feel their grief or their shame or their guilt, they will interpret it as, how do I get rid of it? How do I clear it? How do I free myself of it? But when we cleverly say, and you said it, I love this word, when you say use, we are inferring that this isn't something to throw away. This is a tool that we have to learn how to utilize. And one of the golden rules, I think I say, um, hardships can be fast-tracked through thankfulness. Mm -hmm. I forget which golden rule that is, but it's one of them. And in that chapter of the book, I go into very specific detail about how trapped emotions, stagnant energy blockages, can be used to express creativity. So instead of having it always be a spiritual, psychoanalytical, 
process of, I found something in me, where does it come from? Where's the earliest memory? How can I get rid of it, right? It's not letting go of those things. It's letting go of our fight against the things that are really, if we align with the universe, helping us radically transform. So in this new way of approaching healing, instead of taking these dense emotions and trying to get rid of them, throw it out, as if there's no purpose to it. Instead, we say, how can I use or how can I best utilize or implement this tool? And all trapped emotions, all blocks, all lingering energetic debris is literally fuel for the inner artist. And when the inner artist has as much time and attention through dancing, through singing, through cooking, through writing, through painting, whatever creative expression we all have within us, and even when we don't know what to paint, draw, or write, even writing about I don't know what to write is creativity. So when we balance out creativity with spiritual pursuit, we find those two energies really bring about the awakening of the soul. And as a byproduct, the awakening of the soul will integrate the ego so not to create this really dastardly path or this um, predicament where we are the ego trying to get rid of itself, which is a very painful place to be. Yeah, it is. And it seems to be, uh, that was the third, hardships can be fast-tracked through thankfulness. I love Number that. Three. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a common thing, along with the idea that awakening is a destination, too. Right. So here we are trying to get rid of all of our stuff, our ego, mm -hmm. and trying to get to a non-reachable place. <laughs> kind of a double bond there. So it's, you're really talking about integration, I think, allowing and integrating. So can you expand on that shift in how we dissolve the barriers to the fulfillment of our self-realization, I think? is. Yeah, I think the greatest integrator of self-realization is, and I think maybe that doesn't get spoken about or highlighted enough, and of course, one of the many things this book helps you cultivate energetically is the vibration of humility. So, you know, if people, even if people perceive awakening or enlightenment as a destination, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. Because to me, that's like a, we can buff that out in the end. But the reality is, if it's, if it's a destination, it's an existential destination that says, one day in the future, I will realize where I've always been. So it's kind of a destination. It's kind of an upcoming. Um, but when we think of humility, here's the greatest way to unpack, for me, humility and birds of self-realization. One day, I will be able to see how perfect, whole, and complete I've always been and how perfect, whole, and complete everything has already been. And I accept that today may not be that day. Like, feel the humility that I'm equally going to have this grandiose seeing. I am worthy of that seeing. And that what I'm experiencing right now is preparing me for the seeing if I can just humble myself and admit I'm not quite where I'm going to be. And in that, the ego goes through a death of going, that's defeat, that's, I'm less than, because the ego has to always compete to be the best. Mm -hmm. So when it's not the greatest or aspiring for the greatest, it goes through a mini death and it happens on the spiritual journey. It's very strange when, you're, when, you, when people have a spiritual ego that is competing with itself, mm -hmm. right? So really humility is what really gets us into the heart of this. You know, even if you get triggered, and someone were to say, there will be a time in the very near future where I don't find myself triggered again. And it's okay that today may not be that day. Like, can we just make the softest place for all these experiences to land instead of it being like 
you know, awakening is like a game of bowling and we're just trying to make our way towards the pins, but we're just contracted waiting for it to go in the gutter at the last minute. <laughs> we want to strike every time. Huh? Every time. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the way it's, uh, if it's really set up. And, and you know, what's really funny is if you ever meet someone who is radically amazing at bowling, who just strikes every single time. And you go, tell me about your process. And they go, oh, I don't know. I just go up and I do it. Like not a cool conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you say to someone who strikes out every time, tell me about your process. Then we have an interesting thing of, oh, well, I go up there and I try and I do this hop on one leg thing and it never works. But it, it's interesting how we always think that resonating with the highest is going to be the most intriguing and interesting. And what we actually find is the greatest artistic growth, the greatest spiritual growth comes in conversations where we actually allow ourselves to talk about what maybe we're not so amazing at, mm -hmm. or not so incredible at, because that's where the humanity is. We came here to grow, evolve, and expand, and to pretend like we're not also equally on a trajectory of expansion, that there are going to be days when we don't nail it all the time, I think that's what the planet really, really needs. So we can take images and idols off of pedestals and instead start to build ourselves up to say we're all amazing, we're all the divine, we're all doing the best we can, and we're all going to have days where we're not quite hitting the mark. And isn't that okay? Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Interesting. That's uh, 16 years now I've been doing this show every week called Conversations. And yeah. that's exactly the, the point. So many things in what you just said. I want to take a couple of them. The first mm -hmm. one, I love the word humility, although I have very little. Uh, <laughs> uh, because it comes from the word humus, which of course means the earth that nourishes and feeds. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful way to look at humility, that, mm -hmm. that it is being grounded in the earth that feeds and nourishes us. And those things that are, are of the ego are, are not of that plane. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that came up in what you were saying, time, witness, and death were the three words that, that, yeah. that came to me. The relationship of time. So this whole idea of someday it's mm -hmm. going to work out and the relationship to time which of course relates to our relationship with death mm -hmm. let's just take that one i think you know where i'm going with that sure. yeah so let's start there well you know when we say there will be a time in the near future where i am feeling transcendent and it may not be today mm -hmm. in that sentence it's a it's a very sophisticated way in one sentence of being able to say i open up my awareness to become aware of where I'm headed, that I am, I am in a dimension of time, I'm going through growth where I am gonna be constantly changing and expanding, and however I see myself now is certainly a building block to who I will become. And at the same time, I admit that even though I will be that, and I'm opening my awareness to welcome that, and not lock myself into a fixed viewpoint that says because of how I'm feeling right now, I couldn't possibly have something better in the future, but to open up to that, and to equally say, and even though that's gonna happen, up ahead and I'm welcoming that. I'm in alignment with that coming to me, I desire that. I'm also accepting that I'm not quite there today and now I go into self-acceptance. And so I think in, in a very simple way, we're actually utilizing, like a tool, time as a gift, time as a tool. 
you know, a lot of people are going to talk about time being an illusion and time being moldable, whether you're talking quantum physics or from a non-dual perspective. And all these things are correct in their own lens of perception. Hmm. But what I really look at is, is a teaching giving credence to the gift and the ability and the skill of something? Like, for example, when you said, you know, oh, you know, of the earth, but the ego is of something else. I would say that the ego is just as much of divinity as anything else is, just like to say, I couldn't honor the adult that I've become unless I had really honored who I was in childhood. It's just that the ego is not the extent of our capacity. It's the building blocks of the evolution of our capacity. Yeah. And there's some people that don't make their way out of childhood mentally, even though they're physically adults. They may hold high positions in politics and in family. They may be running countries. They could be running countries hypothetically, no examples given, whatever country you'd like to imagine, right. <laughs> some parallel dimension. But ego, like anything else, time, ego, duality, polarity, the old teachings to me are the ones that go, this is less than, so this can be emphasized. I call it trading up. Mm -hmm. And what I like to teach is everything is, is created by source. There is no soul that has ever existed that God couldn't love. And there is nothing that wasn't created as the most miraculous gift to unlock the capacity of your highest potential. So it's kind of like, in the way I look at spiritual teachings, our journeys, our energy fields are like these vehicles. And we just don't have the owner's manual. So if you try pushing buttons and nothing happens, you go, it's broken. It's not broken. You just don't know how to operate it. So I like to create in my books, especially with this new one, a new operating manual that says, here's your life and here's how it can work if you're wanting it to be something miraculous and more spectacular than just pushing buttons and seeing what happens. I need one of those for computers. <laughs> <laughs> Technology is just right? coming so fast. It feels like, oh my God. It's incredible. So I love the Greek, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Greek perception of two different kinds of time, chronos, which of course is chronological, mm -hmm. uh, which already is a problem because for the most part we have our past our remembered past yeah. uh, uh, filed in our future, which informs our present. Yeah. But, you know, that's the chronological, but the Kairos time is really interesting when the time is right mm. or, or um, it's emergent time. So I like to think about this journey myself as leaning into the future and being formed by the future that's calling us. Yeah. But then the death part you almost, it feels like I, I'm at the point in my life now where death is like, oh, you know, that'll be interesting. I already died once. I had a death experience and bled to death once and came back. Um, so I don't have a lot of fear of that, which gives a um, infinite kind of sense of being yeah. that isn't restricted by, hope I'm making sense, by this life by this life, so that my relationship to this emergent Kairos kind of time is always right here because I'm leaning into that which is calling me. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it often, it becomes the kind of perception from, 
from someone who on a subconscious level or a conscious level has some form of regret for the past that has already occurred. We oftentimes are leaning into the potential of the future as a way of trying to kind of lean further away from a past that if given the chance to redo, perhaps we would have uh, done differently. But to talk about what you were saying about chronology, to me, chronology, the past doesn't inform the future. And I say this because I think of the wisdom of words. So we have a word called the past. We have a word called the present. We have a word called the future. And for me, chronology is actually a word that means the honoring of all stages, that I honor my past as my past. And if I honor my present as my present and my future as my future, these words all have different letters, they have different sounds, and they have different meanings, which means if I choose, I could use my imagination, and, which is a form of consciousness, and I could find my past in my present or my future, and I could use my present to lean towards the future, but to me, the deepest meaning of chronology is the harmony of balancing all stages. Mm. My past was my past, my present is my present, and my future will be my future. Mm. And for me, they all get to just be balanced, equally existing, without one having to take over the other one. Because when we start to do that, we're just using our imagination to take seemingly connected but unrelated things and trying to find relationships in them, which is wonderful. But in fact, the past will only be the past. The present is always the present. The future will always be the future. And so in chronology, we're actually making peace with time, right? We're saying, if I'm unhappy right now and I know it's relating to my past, let me just address my past. If I'm unhappy with my present, let me address what I could change about my present. If I'm uncertain about my future, let me just make it about that. And if we let things exist in their own little place, just like all seasons belong in their own three month time span, we come into a seasonality of growth and expansion where there is equally gonna be contraction and tension as much as there is release and expansion. And we really start to learn that life in and of itself is the highest path of enlightenment and our job with our free will is determining how much we're going to flow with it and how not as much we're going to flow with it and in moments when we're not flowing with it we can step back and say what kind of self-care do i need which golden rule is going to be the remedy for me right now which chapter i need to open up and realign with instead of making it about i'm trying to get this all perfect as, as if this is some sort of Iron Man race, mm -hmm. instead of the beauty of everything has its time and place, mm -hmm. right? In cooking, in French cuisine, before you cook a meal, you have to measure out your spices and dice everything. It's called mise en place, which is a French word that means everything in its place. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way, the meal of our life has already been prepared, all spices measured, all ingredients diced and Everything is ready and it's up to us to put it together in a certain way. And we come into the harmony of past is the past, present is the present, future is the future. We start to tune into what do I need right now to care for myself through a journey that's going to ensure my highest success. And then we start to feel the heart of enlightenment, the heart of awakening. We start to feel a source that is loving us and guiding us and seeing us through a lens 
that is so different from how we choose to often see ourselves. I love that. I want to go back to something you said, because mm -hmm. I, I noticed a, a hook in it. I always try to pay attention to where I get a little. Yeah. And it was, you know, your, I, I don't know if I can completely recreate it, but it was like the, I was talking about the emergent future. And Kairos, by the way, is like an idea whose time has come or when the fruit is ripe. Of course. Um, that's, that's really the, the you know, it's ripe for picking. Yeah, of course. Um, but it's leaning into it. But you said something there about leaning into the future was someone, possibly someone who had not completed something from the past. Or still, or has a regret of if I or has a regret, right? Yeah, right. To say a little more about that, because you know, I'm, I want to question my own thinking in this. Well, I think it, we have to tune in first of all the quality of the leaning in. So, and and again, it's not just about you; it's just about this right. conversation representing um, the experiences of many. So, there are two kinds of leaning into the future. There is a leaning into the future where I'm curious of how much more miraculous my life could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And then there's the leaning into the future as a way of leaning away from the, from, from the past. Or right. I'm leaning into the future by as a way of trying to get away from my present, uh, which is an echo of my past or whatever the psychoanalysis has been created to uh, perceive. So I think we have to ask ourselves a very interesting question. Am I leaning into the future because I'm excited about the possibilities? Am I leaning into the future to escape something of my present or my past? And even if someone says, oh, I'm just excited about the possibilities. The real question of balance, of humility, of surrender is, mm -hmm. can you be excited about the future, whether anything about your present or past ever changed? Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, then we're authentically just excited about the hope for the future and the possibility of the future. And if we can say to ourselves, whether my present or my past never changed, I'm still excited about what may be. That's an authentic leaning in. Mm -hmm. But if we're excited about this future possibility because of what we hope it changes about our present or what it erases about our past, which is okay, we find that we're using the future to bypass, to escape, and to turn away from the parts of ourselves that really are crying out for such loving attention and in fact, by doing that, we're actually re-separating ourselves from source mm -hmm. because source only wants to be where the greatest healing needs to happen. And so when we have things that come up in our present or our past, the question is, mm -hmm. can we attend to those things with the love that's within our heart? And if we don't have access to that love, how can we cultivate that? How can we reconnect to the universe? How can we say, I don't have what I need for myself universe please work through me which is why these 10 gold rules escort people so incredibly through this process of alignment and connection because i don't want anyone to feel like it's just up to them they are a space in which an entire universe will channel its infinite capacity through you if only we knew how to open up and connect to that kind of magnitude of light yeah nice i like the two distinctions personally i can see both of them in myself in the emergence future and the presencing and also the parts that aren't fully healed from 
from mm. early trauma and things like that. So yeah, it's a really great, great distinction. And it brings up another area. You, you talked about surrendering mm. and that has a lot of baggage, kind of like responsibility. It carries <laughs> a lot of baggage for people. So I'd like to break that down. And also I've heard you talk before about the difference between letting go and letting it go. Yes. I think that relates very much to this, this issue of surrender. Yeah, you know, let it go can be a very dogmatic statement. It's never how I would choose to speak to anyone I've ever worked with. Um, and everyone has the right to teach what they want to teach. It just certainly may not be my flavor personally. Let it, let it go feels very, it feels very disrespectful to the nature of someone's experience. Meaning, if I'm working with someone who's holding on like a death grip to something, that means they're not done learning from the process. They're still in the process. And there's still something in this that needs to be learned, uh, healed, and transformed. So when we are holding on to things, it's because life is refusing to let us let go without all the gifts being received, which is a very abundant way to think. So it's not let it go. It's let go. And letting go is when you on the inside can make choices of your own volition. You have free will to make choices. And the purpose of choices is that every option you select, whether you're aware of it or not, is your ability to determine and say to the universe, this is the vibration I wish to support. So for example, when I make choices, when I eat meals, I'm choosing what is resonant to my taste buds and I'm choosing what is going to support my body with the most efficient digestion and the highest amount of nutrition possible. And every time I do that, it puts me into a state of harmony. So I'm telling the universe through those choices, I support the vibration of harmony, which increases the likelihood that I'm going to choose harmony more often. And that through the law of attraction, only more harmony is going to come my way individually and collectively. So I'm letting go of trying to figure out what to do and what's good and not. And I'm just feeling into my body and I'm feeling into what is most supportive for my evolution. What do I need physically, emotionally, or psychologically, or energetically? And can I start making choices that vote yes for the vibrations I wish to receive? And the more I say yes to the choices that are of a higher vibration, the more worthiness I cultivate to hold that vibration and to attract experiences and people that mirror that vibration. Mm. Brilliant. I love that. So great. Well, that takes us to, I think it's number six, which is the yes. title of your book. Yes. The universe always has a plan. So always. let's share about that a little bit. And, and so that people can actually experience that in the mm -hmm. way, in a way that it isn't a bumper sticker, you know? Yes. No, I, I get that. And, and so here's the, here's the subtlety. Here's the nuance of this teaching you become aware that the universe always has a plan to expand your perception beyond the limiting realms of just a personal viewpoint. But then the ego says very subtly, if, the, if I'm aware that the universe has a plan, I'm not aware of the plan unless I'm aware of every step in the plan. And if I agree to every step on the plan, and if I think that I'm doing every step of the plan correctly, which is where we get really off the rails. So the subtlety of this is the universe always has a plan. You become aware of that everything in your life is divinely ordained 
and it's ordained to give you the experience of constantly making choices of what vibrations you want to enact or what healing still cycles or orbits in your reality. But you become aware that the universe always has a plan. And if you become aware of that so authentically, along with that revelation comes the surrender that says, and I don't need to know all the details of the plan. I just need to know that everything is part of the universe's plan for me. And there we find ourselves into the very balanced center of zero point reality where we equally have two different things. We have a definitive knowing that the universe always has a plan. But equal to knowing is the unknowing, the wonderment, like childlike joy that says, and I don't have to know the details. I just have to know that whatever happens could only be part of the universe's plan for me. And in that balance, in the center of zero point, the heart of every human being opens, the secrets of the universe are unlocked, and we transform from being dense human matter to being physical expressions of our highest divinity and form. There's a wonderful freedom in that, Matt. Yes. I, I love that. It, it actually takes us to faith and trust and yes. honoring what is and what isn't. And it also leaves us in a place of cultivating curiosity. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Because anytime we lock ourselves into a specific point of view, like as if my knowing is all I need, right? Like sometimes people have faith in their own knowing instead of faith in the source of all knowingness within ourselves, which is a very different thing. So I think that when we talk about faith, talk about trust, it's kind of like, for example, you can hold on to the side of the pool, no matter how deep the water is, and you know that you're okay. But there's going to be a time when you're going to be asked to let go and float. And you're going to have to trust the water that you're afraid of sinking into. And the only thing that keeps you from sinking or floating is your ability to relax. And so the knowing keeps us locked to the side of the pool, but the knowing keeps us from drifting off into the center and even creates these funny little justifications that go, I don't need to go to the center. That's probably an experience that's not going to pay off for me. I don't need to risk that. And then something deep within us says, the knowingness that causes me to grip the side of the pool is preparing me to venture into the middle of it and have a different experience. So when we talk about trust and faith. It's not just trust and faith in our knowingness. It's trust and faith in the knowingness that created us as we are, which is in fact one with who we are. But I think what gets very interesting on the spiritual path, especially because of the awakening journey, everyone's going to have some form of a spiritual ego to wake up from as a stage. But everyone has this stage where they learn or they attempt to be soothed by their own static knowledge or their collection of insights from different teachings or teachers instead of being soothed by a connection to the source of all knowingness, which says, as much as I know, my greatest faith and trust and self-love and self-care comes from just being connected to a source that knows everything for me and will bring me everything I need to know the moment I need to know it. And going back to what you were saying earlier, this is where Kronos, uh, and what was the other one? There was Kronos and Kairos, Kronos and Kairos intersect, which is saying the past is the past, the present is the present, the future is the future, and anything I need to know about any of those stages will come to me the moment it's right.
And so we find that when we let go instead of letting it go, we are not judging and ridiculing and trying to trade up our experiences. We are just letting go of trying to be so deeply in charge because what's interesting about human beings is when we try so hard to be in charge, we're rarely making empowered choices. Right? It's so weird that people in their own lives fight for ultimate control but aren't making the kind of choices that honor the control they don't even have. And when you let go of the need of control, you actually find yourself actually being able to have more options and make more empowered choices and being more connected to a universe that is simply waiting for you to awaken and to expand your perspective so that you don't miss a moment of this incredible life of your own never-ending expansion. I mean, it's truly remarkable what's happening. It's remarkable. That's great. You know, Matt, one of the reasons I have so many meditation teachers and mindfulness people on the show is I think in order to do what you're saying, there has to be this point where we recognize ourselves as the witness mm. until we begin some kind of mindfulness practice and can, can actually say, well, this is going on, that's going on with my emotions, my thoughts, my feelings, mm -hmm. but who's observing it, and then mm -hmm. we see, we have that experience of a witness. I think it's very difficult until someone gets there because they think they are the story, the narrative that's going on. I would say this, and I appreciate what you're saying. I would say that someone, goes, someone easily goes from I am the story to I am the witness, and they've gone from everyday ego to spiritual ego very quickly. Uh -huh. uh, and then someone in my position has to, yeah. very, has to be very clever and say, because the setup is who is who's witnessing this, mm -hmm. as if the witness is actually a who. Mm -hmm. Instead of what I, I, I like to look at, can you be honest about your experience? Like if someone is identifying with their story, I don't even touch that. If someone says, oh, but I am, and, and for me, what I find to be more sticky is when someone says, I'm feeling this emotion, but I know that I'm just the witness of it. That for me is a spiritual bypass. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in my experience, and in the universe's point of view, you only have awarenesses and insight. So to make it more compelling in your ability to feel everything as openly as a child would feel it, but with the wisdom and awareness and maturity that the child doesn't have. Yeah, and so for me, the real question is, how deeply can you feel what's arising? Are you so settled in the witness that you will allow the feeling to completely destroy you just to show you that it's just the experience of destruction? You will feel as if you're being destroyed. And that doesn't mean you're identifying with the story. It means you are having an experience of destruction and any experience, destruction, reconstruction, expansion, or otherwise, is always experienced as the I am, which means if there is destruction, I experience it as I am. If there is rebirth, I experience it as I am. And I find in some of these teachings that go, we're going to take you from narrative to witness, and I've experienced this working with many students, that there's a pulling back from their experience and that's a very masculine approach to the old spiritual paradigm. And when you go through the whole cycle, the masculine pulling back becomes the feminine leading in. And people that have trained themselves to pull back 
have the equal impossibility of now leaning in because they go, no, 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 that's samsara. No, that's illusion. And, and all of a sudden, they're pulling back from their own spiritual judgments instead of saying, if I really know who I am, come and get me, do with me what you want, and thank you for this upgrade. Like Lord Shiva style. Ah, I love that. That's, we're kind of going back to the, to the main title of your book, The Universe mm-hmm. Has a Plan, because... And it's the universe that's providing that or, or witnessing or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. That's, that's really great. And you know, it's really funny with some of these teachings and I get, you know, non-do I have, I, I sprinkle a lot of different teachings, but my intuition weaves it all together. Like I don't plan anything I teach. It's just, it's all woven. But I think what's interesting is I find a lot of these non-dual teachings to be like a spiritual version of what happens when your friend takes their first class at karate. Like your friend comes home and goes, I just took the most amazing karate class. Let me show you what I've learned. And they're showing you all these cool moves. Just like in some of these non-dual teachings. Oh my God, I learned under the witness. And you go, what do you mean by that? Okay, close your eyes. Let me show you something. And someone tries to take you through self-inquiry and get you to have that cool experience, which in and of itself can be very opening and beautiful and expansive. And whoa, I'm, I'm, whoa, I am the seer, but, but, but where is the seeing coming from? And Oh, even the experience of a seer is just being seen and all these really valid things. But when it is done to remove you from a narrative, it is equally removing you from the presence of your experience. So I would rather have people identify with their experience and take them into the humility of that experience and to say you're only identifying with something you haven't truly been honest about. And if you can just be honest about what you're identifying with, then the truth will set you free, not the spiritual ego trying to follow someone's dance steps correctly. Hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, it's, it reminds me of the authenticity aspect. The, yes. And it always is inspiring. You know, people, people hide their shame and their, all the things that are going on. And then they share, you know what? I was just trying to look good. And um, <laughs> yeah. what I realized, it was I was trying to please my father. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, yeah, so inspiring that somebody would say that instead of, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> puffing it up, you know, and being a man yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so that's that's awesome. One of the things about meditation I wanted to ask you, yeah, and I've done both, but I I I hear you several times. I've heard you saying you prefer open-eyed meditation to closed-eyed meditation. Talk yeah. about that um, practice, because I've been a long-time meditator and yeah. always been, and I started playing with it more and more, and I actually find it distracting, but yeah, that's because I haven't done it a lot. So when you do an open-eyed meditation, so closed-eyed meditate, here's how I look at it as far as like a prescription. So meditation has to mimic the areas of your life where you have any kind of disharmony. That's the purpose of meditation is the resolver of disharmony. So, and you could also use that as a relaxation practice and all these other beautiful things. So for example, if we look at closed eye meditation, that means we are going to create greater harmony for closed eye exercises. So for example, I've gone through Kundalini awakening for many years. And one of the things that got very disrupted was my sleeping patterns. So when I can't sleep, I lie in bed and I meditate until I go to sleep. 
And if I wake up, I go directly into meditation and I go back and forth and that's how I get my rest. That's been like that for many years, although now I'm starting to really sleep. Most people's disharmonies are sitting in traffic, walking through the store, you know, talking with people. So we have to create meditations that mimic and mirror where people's disharmonies are. So for example, if standing in line makes you impatient, then a open eye meditation is going to bring more harmony to open eye experiences. Is if people can say something about you and it can trigger you, then open eye meditation with an out loud mantra of affirmations for yourself will be the prescription. So I just find that when we do closed eye meditations, people go into the etheric realm, they go consciously into dream state land, which can offer much revelation and expansion. But what I find is people go out into a different level of reality and then they come back to this dimension and it's harder for them to integrate. So I think in the beginning, closed eye meditation is a good opener to possibility. But when we're talking about the integration of your soul and human form, we're talking about if I've pulled away from anything, I've got to lean back into it and create wholeness with my experience. Open eye meditation is really where we start affecting the nervous system on a very deep level. It's where we start rewriting the subconscious mind. And if you do an open eye meditation and you notice your attention is going, it, it shows you that, that this is the attention span. And the, the lengthening of our attention span is one of the greatest things we can do to tell the nervous system that I am at a state of peace, no matter the state of the world or the state of others. So I am someone who has cultivated as part of my gift, I have so much patience, naturally, joyful, loving. I'll take time with people. I don't rush people in dialogues. In fact, if anything, people get weirded out about the time I'm giving. I'm just giving them space. And it's because I'm giving them the space that they perhaps haven't given themselves or that no one has given them. And, I'm, and if you can just give someone a moment of presence, that one moment feels like lifetimes. Of, of resolve and relief. And so just given the state of the world, how many people are awakening and, and where people are in the awakening process, I tend, to, I tend to feel as if open eye meditation for a lot of well-seasoned spiritual uh, seekers and healers is exactly what they need because they know the other meditation. And at a certain point, it tends to be kind of like a, an escape. Uh, let me pull out of this world for a moment, that's fine. But then there has to become this, how do I live in the world as that divinity I am? And the open eye meditation is where all of that you have realized or all of that you're meant to realize can come into the body instead of the soul or the witness leaving the body to go on a little coffee break. Mm. You know, I just realized in your talking that I actually have been doing it and I've been calling it contemplation, but all the walking meditation for yeah. that I've done has been open-eyed and I live on the ocean and I often sit down and just watch the waves, mm -hmm. but I'm not calling it meditation. I'm, call, I'm like uh, contemplating or thinking or I don't know, but yeah, I love what you're saying. I'm going to... I'm going to practice more and do a couple hours a day usually of, of meditation, but I'm going to do more open, open eyes. Well, and, and just, just as it would dropped in very funnily uh, in my transmission just now, just to speak to this, uh, it's like an image of, a, of, a, of an enlightened teacher talking to a student. And the student asked the teacher, how do I find the perfect meditation? 
-hmm. And the enlightened teacher says the perfect meditation are all the things that never call itself meditation. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. So you just exactly what you said, like, oh no, this isn't meditation. This is looking at the ocean. That's perfect. Yeah. Oh, this is contemplation. So the things we don't call meditation are actually revealed to be the greatest meditation, which in, in a funny, ironic twist of fate, if the things that don't call themselves meditation is the perfect meditation, that means all the things about our lives, mostly aside from abuse, that's different. The things in our lives that we wish we could change are just perhaps meditations we haven't come into harmony with. And as soon as we do, the universe goes, thanks for growing and learning to this capacity. We'll change and transform it on its own because the universe always has a plan. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I walk my dog Buddha twice a day, you know, that's... <laughs> I guess a meditation too. It's certainly yeah. uh, one of my great times to get away from the computer and, yeah. and writing and everything. Well, I've saved the best for last. Uh, <laughs> and that is number 10. And that is, uh, love is our liberator. So let's talk about love as, uh, and you know, we have, we have this weird notion. We love potatoes, we love our, our car, and we love our spouse, and they're all used in the same way. <laughs> so let's start off by having an operational definition of, uh, or an experiential definition of love. Well, first of all, potatoes deserve to be loved because they're delicious. Potatoes are such givers, aren't they? Um, but, I think what, where the distinction gets kind of caught is that they have eyes that don't see. Yeah, exactly. They do have eyes that don't see, which how many of us have had that experience? I've had eyes in my life and they haven't seen anything. Um, but I think the confusion for a lot of people is they say in order to love, I have to like. Mm -hmm. And I think that what happens is, is that when we don't like the experience, which is just basically saying, hey, the universe has a plan for me. This is a part of the universe's plan. And I'm going through my own growth and expansion. And guess what? I don't like this one bit. To say that you don't like it, and I really go into some very, very healing exercises to tell people, make peace. Yeah, that's and, rule number eight. That's uh, actually to dislike. Yeah. It's okay to dislike. That <laughs> in order to love, it's okay to dislike because dislike is a part of our authentic expression of self acceptance. I accept the universe has a plan for me. I accept that this is a part of the universe's plan. And I accept I don't like how this feels. And I accept that in the near future, I'm going to love how I feel. And I also accept that I may not be there right now. Mm -hmm. So when we say it's okay to dislike, we don't have to judge the things we dislike. We don't have to treat them like enemies of any kind. We can just be honest about our emotional experience because when we're honest about our experience and contrary to the old spiritual paradigm that says, if you say that you're going to attract more of the same and all sorts of fantastic superstition nonsense that is not true. Uh, it's just something that people who are disempowered will believe because they're so afraid of things getting worse. But the reality is, is that if you can dislike, you'll find yourself loving the one who's having such an unlikable experience. So even when I wrote my book, Whatever Arises, Love That, people thought I meant whatever arises, love that. And I was referring to that as like, I am that. Like whatever arises, love that. Love that within yourself that is having an unpleasant experience, 
Love that within yourself that doesn't like the way other people are seeing you. Love that within yourself. So when love is our liberator, we are going to heal our wounds by loving the one who has been wounded. And the entry point into loving the experiences we wish we didn't have to have is in order to truly love the one, we have to empathize with the experience they're having. And the way we become aware of empathizing with ourselves is to be honest with ourselves about what we don't dislike. A lot of people who are in a rather unconscious state need to be honest about their feelings on social media just to become in tune and aware of what's going on in their experience. But a truly conscious being says, I only need to be honest with myself about my experience. And if I can admit how much I truly dislike this, it will show me on a very deep empathetic level. Don't I deserve more love right now? And instead of waiting for all these people to give me that love and holding my breath, what if I could be the space where the universe can love me? Where the universe can say, you know what, Matt? It's okay that you dislike how this feels, but we're going to love you through this and we're going to make the most of this. So that's really where we start to open up to love as our liberator. And it's all these 10 golden rules that I've channeled from the universe that makes approaching that 10th golden rule easy and instinctive versus effortful and exhausting. So we just take each golden rule step by step with all these interactive exercises I channeled in the book and we literally find our way out of the plight of victimhood, out of the distractions of samsara or illusion or ego consciousness, and we literally come into a heavenly awakening of light that as we shine that light is going to be the force through which the world is transformed. Wow, brilliant. Well, Matt Kahn, my brother, I love you and I appreciate you and so grateful for you to take the time to be with us and for the beautiful videos you do and all the work you do and just spreading the love. So thank you for taking the time to be on Conversations. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.